0: Lily, I think I've eaten too many chocolate mini eggs. I seem to have grown and my clothes no longer fit.
1: Oh, dear. That's so sad. Well, not sad that you ate mini eggs, but sad about (laughs) the other stuff. Um, But it's also a great segue into today's topic where we're talking about how you need to ready your product or business for growth, which means making sure you have the right
0: fit. Ooh, I see what you did there. You're sneaky. (laughs) Daphne Tidman is the author of Growing Happy Clients: Our Processes and Experiences for Growing Fortune 500 Corporates and the Fastest Growing Scale-ups, which has a great title but a really long subtitle, and she also works as a growth consultant, so she knows all about this stuff.
1: She's also got some pretty good success stories within e-commerce and shares how growth and product should work to drive the best outcomes. So, let's get straight to the chat. The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product.
0: Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love.
1: Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos.
0: Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more.
1: Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hi, Daphne. Thank you so much for joining us on the Product Experience Podcast. It's great to be talking to you today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Um, So we're going to cover off some topics around product market fit and extras, um, but yeah. before we get stuck into that, it would be great if you could give us a real quick intro into who you are and your background and what you're up to these days.
2: Sure. So I started in growth hacking when that was just a really weird term that no one actually knew what it was about seven eight years ago at uh, a uh, growth hacking agency called Rock Boost. I was their first employee and was a part of them for over five years, consulting all types of companies, from startups to corporates, from B2B to B2C, Uh, and learned a lot while I was there. And then basically decided that I really wanted to see the brand side. So I rounded off that whole uh, five-year experience with also writing a book for uh, other consultants and freelancers for just all the lessons that we'd learned over that time called Growing Happy Clients and then I moved on to Heights as head of growth and I was there uh, for just over a year and a half and uh, got to help them 10x their growth over that time in terms of subscriber base and again just learned an incredible amount and also missed the consulting side Uh, so ended up uh, coaching other startups in how to grow so head of growth and founders and that's actually what I'm doing now I'm just taking some time off um between this and my next adventure to uh, just focus a little bit more on that coaching and also take some things off the bucket list uh, and do some trips while uh, while it's finally possible again after <laughs> a long COVID period. Um, so, yeah.
1: Amazing. Thank you. So we're going to get into the growth side as well because I think yeah. a lot of the product people will be interested to hear your take on it. But before we get into that, I know from my experience of working in startups, you know, one of the kind of key things to achieve before growth is product market fit. So how do you define product market fit? And then also, I know that you have kind of a couple of extra dimensions of this that you like to see working before growth can happen.
2: Yeah, so I think the traditional definition of product market fit is that 40% would be very disappointed if they can no longer use your product or not. And I think like the cheeky kind of answer around it is just basically you kind of know when you have product market fit in the sense that uh, there's a you found an audience that really loves your product, that really enjoys it, where retention is strong, where you're getting really good feedback. And so I think that's really the foundation of any uh, growth journey because, you know, otherwise you end up with a leaky bucket or it's just a lot of work to try and get people uh, in. And you're right. I do have a few additions to that because over the time I started to see all these. uh, different companies um, that had really amazing products, often e-commerce companies, and like they'd be getting amazing reviews on Trustpilot, but they were still struggling to grow. And I tried to understand, like, okay, why is it still so hard to grow? And I came across this uh, model. I'm not going to claim <laughs> any credits for it. It was originally from Reforge, it's where they actually said it's not just about product market fit, it's about product market channel model fit. And it was like everything clicked for me in that moment because I realized, like, they're right because there's so many people who just set their own model of what they think is interesting without actually looking like, Hey, does this actually match the market? Does this match the product? But also like with channels, just doing the things that everyone's doing Facebook and Google ads, because that's what you should be doing. Um, it's that general feeling. That's not what I'm giving as advice. (laughs) (laughs) And, (laughs) and I was like, well, if you actually look at it of all these different bits, it makes so much more sense because then you can actually make sure that everything's setting you up for success versus just one element. And I think with the growing competition that we see, uh, especially online, um, we really have to have that stronger foundation to grow from.
1: So, with product market fit i think a lot of product managers will be familiar with what that means you know you've got the yeah. right product and the right solution yeah. and then the right market so the right audience but yeah. w- what for for those that aren't familiar with the terms channel and model what what do those terms kind of mean in this context
2: Yeah. So if we start with model, because I think it's always like a kind of journey from like, okay, you've got a good match with problem solution. You've got a good match of your product market. Then you start to look at what's the right business model to make this a sustainable business. Um, And then you start to look at which channels match all of that. And there's a layer on top of that about also getting all the language and the proposition right. Uh, But to focus purely on that model side, I don't mean just pricing. I mean, what is the structure that you're going to uh, make a sustainable business from. So that can also be, are we going to have subscription? Are we going to have freemium and um, a freemium model? Are we going to have different pricing plans? And a lot of companies just set this based on what they see their competitors doing. Mm. Or they're just like, oh, this sounds like a good amount because these are what our costs are. But what your costs are aren't necessarily what your customers willing to pay for it. So I had one business who literally day before launch was like, actually, it's a lot more expensive to make than we thought. Let's just up the price by twenty five percent. And so the model is really about like, have you got the right business model that suits your audience? And it's a really hard one to test around. But it's mm-hmm. just getting the right model and the right setup in terms of structure, plans, or pricing. Um, of the products to match what the audience wants versus what everyone else is doing in the market. And then the channels is basically, okay. how are we going to reach our target audience? How are we going to get this out there? Because let's say you have a um, product where you have a maximum cost of acquisition of £20. You're not going to use sale reps to sell that product because it's never going to be a sustainable model uh, because your costs are going to end up too high. And you, you know, you might not choose to use a channel like LinkedIn where the cost for clicks are very high because your conversion rate needs to be super high. If you want to make that work at a 20 pound cost for acquisition. So the channels is really looking at like, okay, where is my target market? What matches actually the product that I'm offering? Like what's a logical place um, that people would see it or that it, that is suitable uh, to explain it and show it? And what is also the right one based on my model?
0: Definitely, is this something that works consistently uh, in a consistent way for both B2B and B2C or are there fundamental differences based on who your target audience is?
2: So I think it works for both of them because if you take the example of like the model, you're going to look and uh, looking like which channels match the model, you're going to be looking at very different channels uh, for a B2B brand because you have a way higher cost of acquisition. So the opportunities and the options you can take there work a lot better so i think this definitely is applicable to both and that um it's a really good way to think about it the only difference is like hey is it a product is it a service and also with the market side you might have a you know a slightly different definition of hey who is my market and how do i go around testing it because with with b2b of course you're working with business and individuals within a business so you might have Multiple people within the business that you need to find that right fit and that right setup to reach them.
1: So, you've worked with a lot of businesses, uh, you know, before uh, at that kind of pre growth or, you know, at the growth sort of stage. Where do you see businesses go wrong with the product market channel model fit? Is it just that they haven't considered all four of those dimensions or are they doing something else wrong?
2: So I think what goes wrong is usually in the very beginning of it. I think a lot of businesses I've seen don't do as much research as you'd hope. And it's usually like we'll be like trying to grow a business and we'll see like, hey, this is harder than we expected. And let's go back to the basis because that's always what I like to do. I like to go back to like, what is the customer saying? What is the initial reason why we're here? Uh, Because sometimes things get lost in that process of trying to grow, 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 and a message gets rewritten so often you lose kind of that fundamental connection with that end consumer. So, And then I find out that there's very little to no research where it's built on. And it's usually like a company then gets created. um, And I used to do like these uh, judging of of, of startups at an event always. And I'd always ask them like, how did you come up with this idea? And I'd be like, oh, this is something I'd want.
0: But this is something my
2: friends have complained about. And so there is like this initial like tiny, you know, user group. But beyond that, they haven't like done testing with with a broader audience. And I think all they've done only testing around the product and they've got that right. But they've kind of forgotten not to test um, around those specific elements and to really like go back to like, okay, where, you know, where is actually our customer on day to day? where can we actually best reach them versus hey everyone's doing tiktok now maybe we should do tiktok or sms is up and coming so we should do sms and the same with like pricing like the example i gave just basing it on competitors and i think companies sometimes underestimate like the either the value of it or the um impact that that research can have on these different elements and i don't mean with like pricing just asking people okay what would you pay for this but there's like specific pricing models where you can ask different questions and get a different range to start to understand what do they value for certain features for certain areas and use that to figure out, Hey, what is actually a product that they're willing to pay the amount that I want to create a model around. Um So I spend a lot of time also just trying to go back to those basics and make research really easy because I think that's the other reason why this gets forgotten. is startup is like, go, 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 got to hit our targets and keep doing more and more and more. And, Often, what we'll gets seen as like a channel issue is actually just this whole model being out of balance. So, I just try to make it also really easy to get back to the, to that that research again, um, and just show how simple it is. Because I think, yeah, that's kind of the foundations where it always goes wrong, and you want to make research a core of the the startup again.
0: When do you do the research? Is it a, a one time thing that you do at an early stage, or is it a continual uh, reframing and? you know is it scheduled is it ad hoc
2: continuous process so i think that when um research is ad hoc or is a one off thing it kind of gets forgotten and i know that product people talk a lot about like product intuition um and maybe this is like either the same or the growth version of this growth intuition but i think you have to constantly be close to that customer so i try to schedule it to make sure it doesn't get forgotten so either having like an automatic part of a flow where we ask people if they want to uh, schedule one and then having a calendar link and then even narrowing it down if we've got too many responses or figuring out how to improve that if we haven't got enough having like regular going through um, research and also just making it accessible so also when I was at Heights I actually started when I first joined in our own internal podcast which was called Executive Function, which was a little brain joke um, as a brain care company, um, where we just recorded these uh, customer interviews that we were doing on every month and just released episodes every week or two uh, to just share the actual, um, yeah, what the customer is exactly saying with the whole team to make sure that everyone's getting that feeling for what it does the end customer want and need.
1: And so, in that research, are you checking? Are you kind of continuously checking for these different fits as well? Or
2: so it depends, like what phase we're at. Like, I don't. I think product market fit can shift over time for sure. Um, we have in the Netherlands, for example, uh, where I'm originally from, uh, a competitor of Facebook who was huge back in the day. Hives and everyone in the Netherlands was on it. And I lived abroad, so whenever I came back, I was like should I get this finally or not? But then Facebook came along and offered a way better solution and a way better setup and a more international option as as people also want a in more international context. And they just went from having product market fit and everyone using it on a daily basis to just, yeah, ending. Um, and so I do think it can change over time, but I don't think you need to constantly be second guessing it and you know double checking it. I think it's more like, uh with product market fit if a company is doing like a product market fit survey or either say have it continuously send out and just monitor how it's changing over time and if you're seeing sudden like drops or increases to just work out what's going or just do it once every three months as like a, a check to see hey how's this going? And like the same with other things like a model is probably going to stay similar unless there's really big shifts. So for example now we see all these e-commerce companies going to subscriptions Uh, because that is great for investors. They love it in terms of what it does um, for the value of the company. But I personally believe that within a few years' time, that model isn't going to be as effective as it was before because people are getting subscription fatigue eventually, or we're going to have to change how we do subscriptions to give the customer more control Mm. um, because of this fear of, like, how do I keep track of all the subscriptions I've got? How do I stay in control and have still that flexibility? That's also a desire. So I think shifts like that can impact it, but you don't need to be looking every single day or every single month if you have got that basis right.
0: Someone just has to build a subscription aggregator that you subscribe to to manage all (laughs) your subscriptions. I'm sorry. That
2: that would be perfect. I Mm -hmm. constantly, like, suddenly realize, like, Oh yeah, I subscribed. Oh no, I subscribed to that. Oh god, I need to like sort it out. Like every three months, I just have a cleanup, and I'm like, on the one hand, so proud of myself, like, oh, I've saved money, I've cancelled that, cancelled that, and I'm like, on the other hand, I'm like, how did I let it get this far? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think we've all been there. Yeah. So how does this work with the product team then? So you're you're learning about what the the attitudes are, but how do you take that back to the the product team? to uh influence their roadmap um are you well I'm not even sure where you would start
2: yeah so I think growth has uh the last like few years gotten a bit of like uh been equated a bit too much as marketing um and I actually wrote a piece about this and I think I like, originally like, seven years ago like or even no, oh my gosh, it's 10 years ago. I think it was 2012. Andrew <laughs> Tran uh about then wrote an article where he said growth is the new VP, it's marketing. And you started to see also like more and more brands thinking, hey, this is a replacement of marketing and equating growth to marketing. But as we look at that model, like we see that product is an absolutely huge part of that. And while product is obviously part of the official definition of marketing with the four Ps, we see more and more organizations having a separate product team. Um, and as a result, I think that growth and product is a really big overlap. And they have to work closely together on this. So it shouldn't be like, hey, the growth team is doing all this research or the product teams. I think together they're looking at like how can we get these foundations strong? Um, and that could be like if it's a very product led growth organization, as we're seeing like with more and more SaaS organizations, that growth sits on the product, but it may also be that you have a separate growth team that combines all the different uh, elements. So it has someone from marketing, so a developer, designer, a product um, manager, and it's just working together with them on these kind of challenges and looking together, like, hey, how can we use the product to get these growth opportunities or build the product in a way that it matches these? And it also really depends, and that's why I personally do like growth being in a lot of cases, a separate entity where you need to focus because sometimes it is just a marketing thing and it is like, Hey, we haven't got the language right or we haven't found the right channels and we need to be testing those. But in other times I think like product then gets underestimated if the impact of it. And we just assume we can't change anything about the product or even like, you know, the website experience when actually that's when a lot of the best growth opportunities are and they just get overlooked. So yeah, I think they're very closely aligned and need to work together to, on these challenges.
0: If 2022 is the year you're looking to advance your career, expand your network, get inspired, and bring the best products to market, then join Mind the Product for their next conference this May.
1: At MTPCon San Francisco plus Americas, you'll soak up invaluable insights from an epic lineup of the best in product, covering a range of topics that will challenge and inspire you to step up as a product manager.
0: You've got the option to go fully digital for both days or get the best of both worlds with a hybrid ticket. Digital on day one and in person at the SF Jazz in San Francisco on day two. I was at the most recent edition of this event in London last year, and it was just awesome.
1: Get tickets now at mindtheproduct.com.
0: The, the negative perspective on all this is that growth is done as something. Well, I mean, it's called growth hacking. So it sounds yeah. <laughs> like it's done in a half-assed way, like it's going to yeah. create operational debt. So yeah. how do you do it that way in a way? Is, does it necessarily have to create uh, debt that you pay back, or is there a way of doing it uh, so that it's, it, it scales?
2: Yeah, so... Um... I used to avoid the word growth hacking because I didn't like the connotation it had. Uh, And then I started saying data-driven marketing and then I realized the risk of equating growth to marketing uh, because everything just becomes a channel problem versus looking at the fundamentals. And then I went back to growth hacking or just growth consulting of a lack of a better word. So I know what you mean with the connotation. A marketing
0: person is having trouble describing the right word to use. Imagine Hey, (laughs) <laughs> it's, uh, we all have this problem uh,
2: yeah so I um, I would say like uh, there's a time for chaos and there's a time not for chaos so uh, there's a book called also Blitzkating which talks about you know these fast momentum uh, moments and when you're growing and that you do accept certain chaos in it but I've also seen the opposite be true that if there's too much chaos there's no foundations to go quickly at a certain point so I think it's, it's, it's looking at like, hey, if there's something is that we don't know or we need to move fast, accepting that chaos. But I think also we need to look at like, how can we build the assets for success? So, for example, I think a really good example of this is attribution. Um, you know, in the beginning, you're going to accept a slightly chaos, messy, potentially even manual time process because you don't have enough customers to justify a really fancy attribution setup. But at a certain point, that's going to hold you back. And the same like with your website, like, you know, if you don't have the flexibility in the beginning, it might be fine when you're making small changes. But as you want to test more and more, you need to get those foundations. So I think growth is not about these quick hacks. If anything, I think the biggest impact is also is often these fundamental risky tests and that it's it's looking at like, hey, is this a moment where we need to go really fast? Is this a moment where we you know, need to accept that things are breaking as we're pushing ourselves uh, to reach a certain goal, get there faster than someone else? Or is this a time where our lack of infrastructure or lack of processes is holding us back and we might need to uh, focus on building those foundations step by step to allow us to actually go fast again in the future?
1: So what's kind of, you've had lots of experience working in e-commerce and with e-commerce businesses, yeah. what's kind of special or different about um, working in e-commerce compared to like a B2B business or or something like that? How yeah. how do e-commerce professionals need to think about their products and growth that's slightly different? Because the way that I see it, it's like someone needs to visit a website and buy something. Like, <laughs> that's yeah. kind of fundamentally, it's just the same for everyone. So... I find it really interesting to think about like how you differentiate in that journey. Uh, Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, So, firstly, I would say I absolutely love e-commerce. I've done B two B too, as I mentioned at the beginning, but I find that you're sometimes a bit like you're even less close to the end customer, or there's so many layers and complexity to it that it's you, you you easily forget the human behind it. And what I love with e-commerce is that you know very tangible of like hey they're getting this physical product I know they're going to be actually you know using receiving something that we're creating and that's going to bring joy to them so I love that close connection I think you're right like there's more and more competitors and then in its essence it's like hey okay we just need to basically help them uh, buy it but I think like that makes it even more and more important and to be honest, I think this is for B two B too, so maybe it's not a difference, but it is, I think, exceptionally important for e commerce nowadays. Is uh, the brand element? Like I used to be like very data driven. Like I was like brand. Ugh, don't 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 think that's for me that side of it. And I've really grown to like realize how crucial it is because that's your differentiators. Like you don't have network effects like you do with a marketplace. Um, you know, economies of scales is an advantage for some brands, but might not be where you want to go with it. So your 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 moat that you're creating is often the brand. And I think that for e-commerce, it's even more important to create a kind of human experience to gain trust that you're not just actually buying, you know, drop shipped products for ten times what the, the actual value is. That you're building trust and 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 feel a connection with it. And just making it really easy, um, like an easy, effortless experience and a really enjoyable experience. Um, and I think that's where brands can also differentiate in, in all of that. I think one of the other differences uh, to either B2B or some SaaS um, products is that certain growth loops can be harder to make work. Uh, we all want to go viral. Everyone thinks with growth hacking and um, it's, you know, it's like how do we basically grip virality? How do we get a referral loop? And I've seen brands have good successes. I'm not saying it's not possible with us e-commerce brands having like discounts or rewards, but I think having really that exponential referral loop, like the companies that Dropbox, you know, Hotmail, these classic growth examples grew off, is a bit harder. You do have examples, but it requires a lot of creativity and differentiation. So I love the example of Harry's with the Razor, the Razor brand, where they did pre-launch this whole building of an email list. Really offering like great rewards, having funny content around it, building that relationship. they you know, one of like the few examples that I can think of of an e-commerce brand going viral. And I think because of that, like it's more and more about like how do you actually create something that people love, and that the virality is then more word of mouth, which is harder to control but can be just as impactful. So I always think of the um, example of Decium, who does uh, the brand The Ordinary. I have never had any referral benefits for them uh, whatsoever, but I have recommended them to at least 10 different people, send links from the website because I just love their products. Like I think they've gotten it so right in like a very expensive, very crowded niche of, of skincare and that that gives them that certain virality. But those kind of loops are, are in my opinion, often more either product-based or really require big creativity versus you know, a product where you know Slack or something, where it's like, okay, we can build something where you're inviting other people and you're getting extra value to get it on. That's far easier. It's not necessarily going viral, but it is a much easier referral loop to build.
0: So you talked about a couple of examples there that were pre-launch and some that were uh, post-launch. Yeah. When should you actually hire somebody to focus on growth? Is that at the very beginning? Do or, or well, when?
2: Yeah, so I think most companies try to hire for growth too too soon. I've noticed in the and I don't know it might have been a trend before that, but I probably became you know aware of it when I became a head of growth. Was that suddenly everyone was looking for a head of growth? It was <laughs> like it was like the, the 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 hot new hire. Every startup needs a head of growth. And I I wrote a series about this recently because I realized um, from talking to multiple people, head of growth uh, at companies that. A lot of them were really struggling to be successful and it wasn't because they were necessarily, uh, you know, not good at their job, but because they'd been hired too early. And so I think that's the main thing is it's like, you know, if you don't have product market fit yet, do you need someone to grow? Like, do you need to hire a growth manager? I would, I would say you need a product hire or you need to work with the founders or with a validation expert to really get that right. Because let's say you fundamentally need to change your product and it is a physical product versus a digital one, that's a long journey. That takes a lot of time. And you also probably don't have, like, the budget sort of room yet to test and explore these uh, areas. And then even if you do have that product market fit, if you don't know which channels you're going to be focusing on, let's say you've got the, you know, product market fit, you've worked out your business model, you know, there might be a few changes, but the basis looks good. Then you're working out your channels. Let's say you hire a growth manager that's very experienced in SEO and, In um, paid ads, they're going to see that most likely as the solution. They're going to try to look holistically, but that's where they know and that's where they have the expertise. So it's it's natural that you know you look at things like from that kind of perspective. And so I think that that's the second part where where they often get hired too early. It's like you have no idea what channels are the right ones for you yet, so you don't know who to actually hire. So in those cases, I think it could be better to do have an interim head of growth or to have a a consultant or like multiple people help you out um, before you hire that head of growth, because you don't know what their skill sets are, or you need to go for a more well-rounded head of growth and accept that you're going to have to hire certain specialists. And then the other thing that I think, or or growth manager, whatever you want to call the role, because just like growth hacker does a million names for these things. Um, (laughs) The other thing I think that's also, is like, and a lot of, again, I think a lot of people don't realize it. It's like that, I think when you hire a growth manager, you do need to also have someone on the brand side or someone responsible for the brand side. Because often people think like, oh, okay, if I call it growth, I can just stick marketing, I can stick brand, I can stick product. And you hire this head of everything, but no one is amazing at all these different elements. And especially brand and growth are such different skill sets. So I think the when is also dependent on like, do you have someone who would take that part of it assuming that that part is important for you, that you do want to be building a brand, which as we talked about is a key element for a lot of e-commerce companies. Okay, who is actually going to take that piece over and how are you going to separate that role? Because I've met a very few people who are very good at brand and growth and are able to wear both those hats. But normally that's not the case. They're very different skill sets.
1: Mm. I think it's that brand kind of aspect is really interesting because as product managers we tend to yeah. you know really focus on the customer experience and that means like you know the the flows and the journeys and the yeah. the feature set and stuff like that is not always the copywriting and the imagery and um and those kind of nice little things that really yeah. bring the brand to life um, yeah. so yeah it's really that that point is really interesting but one of the other things that I have seen one of the other functions that I've seen a lot in e-commerce businesses is that CRO function yeah so the conversion rate optimization what's yeah. your kind of experience with that function and how it works with growth and product
2: Yes, I think there's a huge overlap. So just to define it, like I think a lot of people think of conversion rate optimization as the very literal definition of it, optimizing the conversion rate. Uh, To be honest, like CRO specialists have been uh, trying to change the whole name and definition of it whenever I go to a conference about it because they realize that the flaw in the naming of it and but for me, it's really about that focus of that what you were talking about, the, the focus of that whole customer journey and optimizing it to get uh, to bring in new customers to, you know, bring value. I think is the most important word versus like a very two dimensional focus on conversion rate that's quite volatile and is focused on just one element of it. Um, and I think that uh, CRO is uh hugely overlapping growth. Uh, that's why I go to the zero conferences um, so often, but I think it's usually a part of the growth for the product team. And it's actually one of the biggest high impact areas because the learnings that it's like one of the easiest to measure areas when, when you're testing things, especially if you have enough volume. If you don't have enough volume, you need to get creative and do things in other ways. But assuming you have enough traffic to test, you can start to learn fundamental things about your business that you can apply in all different areas. So I think it's really the the growth or product needs to lead it, but also make sure that that gets um, spread to the rest of the organization. Because like, let's say reviews work really well for you and you're noticing that people are really resonating with certain types of reviews or or, or formats of it. Uh, How could you integrate that into email or into ads? And suddenly, you know, that optimization on the site can have a way bigger impact um across the whole customer journey if you mm. if you share it with the marketing team if you share it with brand they can start to learn like okay how can we use this to, to help us further
1: amazing Daphne. it's been so good talking to you and learning all about this um thank you so much for joining us today we've sadly run out of time but um yeah it's been great Thank you. And I know that you've got a blog with loads of resources. So we will point people in that direction as well for more content from you.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: The Product Experience is the first
0: and the best
1: podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith,
0: And me, Randy Silver.
1: Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor.
0: Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band PAU, that's P-A-U, thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide.
1: If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank.